14 and hopefully we'll be able to receive that which the Lord has for us this morning. We come to an interesting time in the ministry of Christ. You'll remember in chapter 12, Jesus has been uh, rejected by the people. Well, the people, they look to him as a healer. They look to him as the possible Messiah, the one that the Bible had promised. But the religious leaders of the day, rather than pointing to him and saying, yes, he fulfills the requirement of Scripture, they pointed to him and said, no, he's the devil. And as a result, Jesus turned, and we saw in chapter 13 as he taught, he began to teach in parables. Parables, parabolas, it means to cast alongside, to, to share a spiritual truth with, a, with a, uh, uh, a physical example or story. And I think we'll see the same thing even in this true story that we see in, in chapter 14. And it's interesting, as we begin chapter 14, it begins with uh, a fellow that causes some confusion when we read our Bible. That's Herod. Whenever we look at Herod and we, we read about Herod, we need to realize there are about eight different Herods in the Bible. Herod is like the name of ruler. It's like, for especially there in the, the Palestinian area, Herod came to mean uh, the uh, multiplicity of tetrarchs. Tetrarch simply means a subordinate ruler. A subordinate ruler is one that really had the answer to Rome. He's a puppet. And every one of those Herods they would call kings. And all these Herods are related to one another in one way or another. And they're a twisted, mangled up family that represents exactly what the world's like. You had Herod the Great who helped remodel the temple and make these great structures like Megiddo and, and places that you can go to Israel and go look still today at the places he built. But he could build buildings, but he'd destroy his family. What, what's so great about being able to build this, this incredible building and, and thousand, two thousand years later, people are looking at your building. That's great. But uh, he also killed two of his sons, a couple of his wives, anybody that he thought was trying to, to work in on his business of being a ruler. And when he died, Rome took the Palestinian area and divided it into three parts and gave it to the three remaining sons. And every one of them was a knucklehead. Every single one of them. The Herod we're looking at here, Herod the Tetrarch, is Herod Antipas. Antipas means against everything. That's the name that his father named him. I'm going to name my son against everything. Now some of us probably feel like that's the way our sons are. Against everything. Not always, but, but some of us, maybe we feel that way. This Herod, Antipas, against everything, he was just a despot. All he was about was living in this special little palace that he had built. Below this palace was this incredible dungeon and prison. I don't know why you'd want to live over top of that. I have no idea. But that's what he did. And that's where he would throw his parties. And this Herod, this particular Herod, was the one who was ruling at the time John the Baptist comes forward. At the time when John the Baptist begins to share his, his uh, message of repentance. Change your life. The opportunity to receive the kingdom of God is here. Change your life. Repent. Be right with God so that you can see. But as he came, John the Baptist has so many of God's prophets. Jesus ultimately would say of John the Baptist, of, of men born among women, there's none greater than John the Baptist. Jesus called him the greatest prophet who ever lived. And John the Baptist, when he saw Herod and Herod's wife... Herodias, 
he had to tell them what they were doing was wrong. Herodias was Herod's niece. She had been married to his brother. He had stolen her from his brother and now she was living with him. In order to make it work out so that he could be married to her, he divorced the woman that he married who was the princess of the king of Petra. And ultimately, the king of Petra gets so angry, he brings an army against Herod and wipes out every single man. The only reason Herod doesn't die there is because a legion of Romans stop it. Make them go back their separate ways. Herod was twisted and messed up, and so was Herodias. Example of exactly how our lives get apart from Jesus Christ. And no different than the stories we watched this morning. And you look at the pictures of, of uh, the, those uh, in Islam bowing down and praying. Their, their hearts are sincere, folks. I've been to Israel. You can't walk for two hours without hearing them sound the call to, to prayer. And people having that opportunity to pray, they're sincere about what they're doing, but they're sincerely wrong. And sincerity doesn't get you anywhere. Herod was sincere about loving Herodias, who happened to be his niece and someone else's wife. John the Baptist made sure he knew that wasn't okay. It's not all right. It's an opposition to what God's Word teaches. But as we look at at Herod, and we look at that example in chapter 14, we come to uh, the scripture that lays out for us. At that time, around that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. Now, Herod hears about all that Jesus is doing, and he's excited about what that means. And so it said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. Therefore, these powers are at work in him. We see it in, in Herod, he's got this, this conscience problem. And they're going to, the scripture's going to tell us why. But in his conscience problem, when he looked at Jesus, remember when Jesus stood and he, and he said to his disciples, who do men say that I am? And some said he was a prophet. Some said he was the prophet. Some said he was the Messiah. Here we have Herod thinking it's John the Baptist come back from the dead. It's John the Baptist. And he's going to tell us why he thinks that. Listen, it says, For Herod had laid hold of John, in verse 3, and bound him, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. The Bible always tells the truth about what people do. A lot of times people read the Bible and they, they, they don't understand. When the Bible's talking about a guy who, who had 16 wives, it doesn't mean the Bible is saying you should have 16 wives. It's just telling the truth. It says of Herodias, that was, as far as God's concerned, his brother Philip's wife. That was a woman who belonged to somebody else. But because of her, Herod had put John in prison. Because John, the scripture goes on to tell us, because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. Now Herod didn't. Herod didn't care. It didn't matter to Herod whether or not what John the Baptist said was true. What Jesus said was, he's the greatest prophet who ever lived. But Herod doesn't care about that. It doesn't matter to Herod. Herod would kill him if he wasn't afraid of the fact that the people would rise up against him. And really, what's he going to do about it? He don't have a big old army to send out after people who, who don't like him anymore because he took Herodias in the first place. So here he finds himself in a position, he always waffling between popular opinion 
Everybody knows, right, a popular opinion, you go from hero to zero in less than one second. Do you know that? It don't take long. Just a, just a brief moment. And so here's Herod waffling between all these popular opinions, but he arrests John, puts him in prison. He's got him there, safe. He can't say anything anymore. Herod thinks it's all going to be okay. But then came his birthday in verse 6. And when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So here Herod has a birthday party. Herod's birthday party. Below it is the dungeon. And he has his wife's daughter, which is his brother's daughter. Her name is Salome, who's roughly 18, 19 years old at this time. And Herodias puts her up to dance for all these men who are getting drunk at his birthday party. And when the scripture says, it pleased him... There's a whole lot more involved in that phrase. Herod looked at his brother's daughter, who is now the daughter of his wife, and he longed for her. And as he longed for her in this this crazed moment, he promises her whatever she wants, whatever you want, I'll give you anything you want. And Herodias knew what a knucklehead Herod was and that he would do it. And that's what he did. So she came to him. He came to her and said, whatever you can ask, I'll give you. So she said, having been prompted by her mother, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. The king didn't really want to do it. Well, he didn't want to do it because, remember, he was afraid of the people. He wanted to do it, but he was afraid of what the people would say. But now, here he was at his party, he had all these dignitaries around him and all this stuff going on, and he thinks, well, I'm going to lose face if I promise her this and then tell her I won't give it to her. So he sends down to the dungeon. And they walk down to the dungeon and they bring John the Baptist out and they cut off his head, put it on a platter, bring it up to Salome, the daughter, and hand it to her. This is in the middle of the birthday party. She takes that head, walks it over to her mother, and gives it to her mom. This is the family of Herod. This is the way they conduct themselves. But when I read this story, listen, I remember, do you remember, it wasn't that long ago, a few chapters ago, when John the Baptist was arrested. And while he was arrested, he sent word to Jesus. And he said, are you the one or do we look for another? And Jesus' response was interesting. He said to him, go back and tell John, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame leap like a deer. And blessed is he who is not disappointed because of me. And that message going back, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame run like a deer. Those were all promises of what Messiah would do. What Jesus Christ did, fulfilling prophecy. That's what he would do. We look at it, we see it, he says, yep, that definitely fits within the framework of Messiah. But the phrase, and blessed is he who is not disappointed because of me. That phrase was speaking exactly to John. Because here's John. What did Jesus say about him? Greatest man born of women. The greatest prophet to ever walk. This incredibly gifted person. And Jesus wanted him to know, I'm not coming to, to, to spare you the life that you're going to live. 
Blessed is he who's not disappointed because of me. Do we know that there are times when we call upon the name of the Lord and we desire to be delivered from the enemies of God and God doesn't deliver? That same phrase is there for us. Blessed is he who is not disappointed because of me. What about that Indian man, that the, the folk story that goes along with the, the, the song, I have decided to follow Jesus. What about as he stood there in that place and, and he had no answer and he didn't know what to do and he began to sing. He began to, he didn't even know how to answer. The scripture says, don't worry about how you'll answer someone. The Holy Spirit will give you the words. So he sings a song and they kill his children. He sings the next verse, they kill his wife. Sings the next verse, they take his life. Where was God? Why didn't all powerful God come down from the heavens, smite his enemy, and take control of the situation and spare them? Folks, in a, in a moment, they had to go through some pretty horrific stuff. It would be pretty horrific to watch someone slaughter your children in front of you. That's horrific. But you see, the Bible says that was just a brief instant. Even if that entire episode took 20 minutes, 30 minutes of sheer terror. What that man knew as he sang that song was every time they took a life of one of his children, my child now is in the presence of God. No one can ever hurt him again. My child is in God's presence forever. It's either true or it's a lie. Unfortunately, sometimes we live our lives like we can't trust God. That man trusted his children to his hands. His wife. His life. And what did God do? Blessed is he who's not disappointed because of me. Well, the rest of the story tells how that whole village... As a result of the faith of that man and the trust that he had in Almighty God, that whole village got saved. Folks, that's not the only story like that. It's not the only story of a, a, a whole village whose lives are eternally changed, whose, whose everything has been taken from a, 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 the kingdom of darkness and brought in lock, stock, and barrel to the kingdom of his light and of his love because of a man's faith, because God didn't rescue because God and His sovereignty knows what's necessary. And God, the most important thing to our Lord is not that we have everything we want. The most important thing to our Lord and Savior is that He gets as many people home safe as He can. Not that everything is good and easy. But that everything, while everything is good, that it's going to be worked through His perfect will to change people's lives. And it's no different for John the Baptist. That day when he sat there in the dungeon, he heard that party going on upstairs. I think he probably had an inkling that this is probably the day. He knew for sure when the soldiers came down. This is the day. And he remembered the words that Jesus said to him. Blessed is he who is not disappointed because of me. John, I can't spare you from the pain that you're going to endure. But know that as a result of what you're going to endure, God is going to be able to change lives on a humongous scale. So John went, and they took his head, 
It was illegal. Where was his trial? It was illegal for a Jew to behead anyone. They never beheaded. Their way, their method of of capital punishment was stoning. They beheaded him. They didn't give him any trial. They took it all. But all the while, listen, hear the words of Jesus. And don't be disappointed because of him. There's a time in my life where where I was going through hard times. Uh, I had finally kind of got my life on track. You know, I lived for the world for a long time. And I finally started getting my life on track, and, I, and I'm going to Bible college, and I'm, I'm hungry to want to do whatever it is that God has for me to do. And right then, at that moment, everything in my world started falling apart. I very clearly heard God, heard God say, Jackie, I want you to, to leave this line of work. I was painting freeways. I painted every road in California one time or another. Made lots of money and spent lots of time doing it. You always wondered who did that, right? Painted them all. Painted the airports. Painted everything that was on the ground. Took as much work as I could get. Had all the things going for it. Had the toys. Had the house. Had all that stuff. And, and, and I had put away some money, socked away some money in retirement. And I pulled that out and I said, you know, I'm changing my life. And I'm going away from that. And I'm going to go do what I know God wants me to do. So I got out of that. I got a job that was a 40-hour week instead of a 90-hour week. And I changed my priorities and I started to to really seek after the Lord with everything that was in me. But you know what? Every time I tried to to cash in that retirement, send in the paperwork, fill out the paperwork for it, and and wait for that money to come so that we'd be okay for a couple of months while we got things going, I got this story. Oh yeah, okay, checks in the mail. You ever heard that? (laughs) Finally, after about three months... They told me the truth. The guy who ran the company had taken all that money. There was none. There was no check coming. There was no bailout. There was no help. It was gone. And because it was gone, the house was gone, the cars were gone, the boat was gone, the stuff was gone. And all I could do is say, Lord, what's going on, man? When I was in the world, living for the world, I had all this stuff. And now I'm finally trying to do it. I'm trying to get my life on track. I'm trying to be who you want me to be. And I I think I'm hearing what you want me to do. What is going on? And all that the Lord spoke to me, I I remember driving in my truck down the freeway, you know, having my pity party. And as I'm driving my little Nissan down down the freeway, the Lord said, simple. He said, do you love me more than these? Felt it. Just might as well have been in the truck with me. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than that house? You know, in Matthew chapter 10, he said, if you don't love me more than mother, father, children, if I'm not your primary passion, you're not worthy of me. And he's asking me, Jackie, are you only going to follow me if you get to keep all the stuff? So the men in the, in the nice little black suits and the dark sunglasses took it all. Everything. Looked around and there's nothing left. But I want you to know something. During that time, from the time I had nothing and, and that journey moving forward from that moment has been the greatest time in my life. I don't miss none of that stuff. I am not 
disappointed in following Jesus Christ. I'm not disappointed in what doors he opens or what doors he shuts. I'm not disappointed in the prayers he says yes and the healings he does bring. And I'm not disappointed in the ones he doesn't. Because I know that God is working his perfect plan out and I trust him. And that's exactly how he wants to work in our lives. And that's exactly how he works in theirs. When they're going through that persecution and hard things are happening. He says, don't be disappointed. I'll tell you how you'll be disappointed. You live your life for yourself, gathering up your stuff. And on that day, for each of us, on that day when God calls us home and we stand before him and we see him, that'll be the day of disappointment. Because we'll say, why didn't I live my life like this was real? Why didn't I live my life like this was true? What good is my boat going to do me in heaven? I ain't going to take it with me. I won't need a boat to water ski in heaven. I won't need a surfboard to surf. I won't need all that stuff that I think is so important now. All that really matters, only thing that really matters is Him. No matter what, no matter what we're going through, no matter what we face, He is it. He is the key. Opens up every door. And His encouragement to us this morning is to believe that. Listen, as we look, as we go on in the Scripture, it lays out for us in verse 13. Now when Jesus heard about it, He departed from there by boat to a deserted place by Himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot to the cities. When Jesus heard about John the Baptist, he he wants to just kind of withdraw and he's going to spend some time in prayer. Remember John the Baptist, his cousin. Six months apart they were. John the Baptist, the one who started Jesus' ministry by pointing to him and saying, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now John the Baptist is gone, whom Jesus knew. He knew when, he knew how. And he goes to withdraw, but the multitudes, the people, all the people, they they knew he went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, they didn't have a boat. Jesus did, so he went straight across. They had a walk. They were so hungry to go see Jesus and go spend time with him that they walked around the Sea of Galilee just to be with him. I've been in Iquitos, Peru, where men rode for three days in a canoe up the Amazon River with piranhas and crocodiles and scary things that eat you. For three days, just to spend a couple of days to hear a preacher talk about the Word of God. It's people that are hungry for the Word. For whom the Word has value. It matters. So here are these guys, they go all the way around. And it says, when Jesus... And when Jesus went out, he saw the multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. The question is, when Jesus saw the multitude, he was always moved with compassion. When we see the multitude, what do we say? When Jesus saw the multitude, he saw sheep with no shepherd. And he longed to reach out and touch them. More often than not, when I see the multitude, I want to go the other way. Oh, look at all those people. Let's go someplace where there's not so many. Let's go someplace where there's not so many people. But that's not the way Jesus looked at them. Jesus was moved with compassion. He wanted to heal them. 
Listen, I don't have the ability to lay my hands on somebody unless God gives it, ordains it for that moment to bring healing into somebody's life. But I have the opportunity to tell them a truth that's going to bring healing to their eternity. I have the truth. And if I have the truth, I ought to be moved by compassion for the multitudes. Like Jesus. He's moved with compassion and he goes out and he begins healing them. It says in Lamentations chapter 3, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassion fails not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Isn't it good that God's compassion is new any morning? Anybody ever need a new morning with God? You ever messed up the last one? I don't know that I've had one that I haven't yet. Somewhere along the line, messed up and can be thankful that God's mercy is new every morning. And He's compassionate to me. People may not be compassionate to you, but God is compassionate. He knows, as Fritz was telling us earlier, that we're dirt clods. That's what he says in Psalm 103. He says, I know your frame, you are dust. That means, I know you, you are a dirt clod. When's the last time you looked around and expected a lot out of a dirt clod? This morning, right? When you're trying to get your kids ready for church or get out the door. The Lord says His compassion is new every morning. His mercy is new every morning. Great is His faithfulness toward us. That's the heart that we want to have. But look what happens. It says... And when Jesus heard it, he departed, and he saw the multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitude away, that they may go to the village and buy themselves food. What was their issue? Wrong time, wrong place. That was their attitude. The disciples looked at the multitude and said, Oh, that's the wrong time, wrong place. Multitude, too many people, send them away. Send them away. That was their attitude. Sometimes that's ours. Send the multitudes away. But what did Jesus say? The very next verse. Jesus said, they do not need to go away. That was his attitude. They don't need to go away. And then he looks at his disciples and says, you give them something to eat. They're hungry. You give them something to eat. Every Wednesday, we have an opportunity to feed hungry people here from 5 to 6 o'clock, give or take. We feed anybody who's hungry. They walk through the door, they get fed. But all that is is physical food. And after they eat it, in a little while, they're going to get hungry again. When Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's saying to them, you give them something to eat, he's saying, you give them what they need. There's a multitude here, and they don't have eternal life. They don't have salvation. They don't know that the, the, the Son of God is lying before them to give His life for them, that they might have life eternal. And He's saying to His disciples, give them something to eat. He didn't say go entertain them and dance in front of them like a bunch of monkeys. He didn't say do this, do that, do all this. Give them what they need. That was Jesus' attitude for the multitudes. But the disciples, their issue, their reaction shows that we need faith. Their reaction was, wrong time, wrong place, send them away. 
Sometimes that's our attitude. But this reaction demonstrates the need of faith in the lives of the disciples. And it demonstrates a need of faith in ours. Faith, by the way, is not human reasoning. And faith is not putting trust in faith. Faith is putting trust in Almighty God. Putting your weight into Him and allowing Him to care for you. So they said to Him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. The next thing we see is the lack of resources. We don't have the resources. Wrong time, wrong place, we don't have the resources. Where did they get their resources? Anybody know? Gospel of John tells us they robbed the little boy's lunch. There was a little boy who hears them talking. We don't have any food. Lord, send him away. And the little boy comes to Philip and says, Hey, I got five loaves of barley and two small fish. And so Philip takes that. He grabs it. I'm sure he's thinking, in fact, I know he's thinking, what good is this? Because he brings it to Jesus. And he says to Jesus, well, we have five barley loaves and two small fish. But what is so little among so many? What good is it in this situation? What can we possibly do with it? Ah! Lays it out. The second show of our need for faith is when we look at the lack of resources and we don't realize that I, I have a master who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And he can care for me. I know he is able, but they, they need faith because they only see the lack. They don't see what they have. They only see the lack. But they bring it to Jesus, and what's Jesus do with it? The scripture says, He said to them, Bring them here to me. Little is much in the hands of the Lord, right? Listen, I want you to think. We're not going to go too much longer, but I want you to think about something. We look at the voice of the martyrs and those who have given the ultimate sacrifice for the Lord and those who are going through difficulty and those who are going through hard times. And we sit down and we think, what can I do? It's a wrong time. It's a wrong place. What do I have? Listen, when I brought my little sack of five barley loaves and two fish to the Lord, you know what was in it? Adultery. Murder, lying, was like a, trying to hold water. You ever try to hold water in your hands? You can't do it. It don't matter how hard you squeeze, how tight you hold your fingers, it's coming out everywhere. That's how my life was. And I remember, I distinctly remember the day when the Lord called me and He said, Bring it to me. And I'm thinking, what do I have to give you, Lord? I, I got a broken marriage. I got a broken family. I've ruined everything I touched. It's good for nothing. What can you possibly make out of it? But all the while, Jesus is saying the same thing he's saying here today. Bring it to me. Bring your life to me. Bring your family to me. Bring your job to me. Bring all that you think is, is worthless or too small or unable to affect the world around you. Bring it to me. And you watch. I love that story we watched earlier, Padina and the, and the fellow that was talking to her on the phone. And he said, you can always commit suicide next week. What a crack up. That's definitely not a line you want to use on suicide prevention hotline. 
Try Jesus and see what he does. She wasn't disappointed. Still isn't. Still isn't. Just like Jesus seeing the multitudes move with compassion. But we have to be careful because we like the disciples will say it's a wrong time, it's a wrong place and we don't have nothing. But it's the right time and it's the right place and you have yourself. Don't you remember in chapter 13, I told you you're a treasure. You're a treasure and when Jesus saw you in this world, he purchased the whole world just so he could have you. And he has a plan and a purpose and he wants to turn you loose on the world and watch how you change the things around you. But we have to be willing to bring that basket of garbage to the Lord and say, this is it. This is my life. My life was a bunch of burnout ashes. You ever try to take ashes out of the fireplace and make a log again? Yes, what a mess. But Jesus said, I have come to give you beauty for ashes. That means in his hands, he turns it to gold. Just like he does in this story, guys. We know the story. We've all heard the story of the feeding of the 5,000, haven't we? They don't have anything to bring. Wrong time, wrong place. But Jesus says, bring it to me. And what's he do next? He gives thanks for it. We've got to learn to give thanks for what we do have. Instead of what we don't. And trust me, nobody in the United States has a right to whine about what they don't have. You got a lot. A lot more than a lot of other people. If you have a concrete floor in your house, you're better off than about seven-eighths of the world. I've been a lot of places, they don't have walls, they don't have but dirt floor, no running water, no toilets. That's the way the majority of the world lives. We have to learn to be thankful for what we do have and bring what we do have to the Lord. And what will He do with it? He blesses it and He breaks it. That's what He did with me. I said, Lord, here I am. He blessed it and then He broke it. He took it all. Right now, somebody's thinking, I'm not going to tell him that he can take me then. (laughs) He's going to break me. He's going to take my stuff. I don't know if the Lord will break you and take me. He might give you twice as much stuff. I just know what he's done for me. But I can promise you, he's going to bless you and he's going to break you. We need broke. Way too prideful. I'll do it on my own. He blessed it. And he broke it and he gave the loaves to the disciples and the disciples gave it to the multitudes and they ate and were filled. Everything they needed. They ate it and they were filled, had everything that they needed from five barley loaves and two small fish. Two small fish. Not big fish like I catch. (laughs) Little fish like Jason catches. It's a beautiful thing to have a microphone. That's how they fed them. Listen, we bring that stuff to the Lord and we say, it's the right time, it's the right place. We bring it to Him, He blesses it, breaks it, and then He does what He needs to feed the multitudes. And it will work. And it will change our communities, and it will change the towns we live in, and it will change our families when we start actually living what it is that God's calling us to do. 
when it becomes real to us, when it's not just words on a page, and there's so much left over, what's the results? They had more than they needed. They gathered up 12 boxes, 12 baskets of leftovers. 12 baskets full of leftovers of the fragments that remained. And the last thing the Word says about it is, now those who were eaten were 5,000 men. 5,000 men ate it. What's the point? What are you talking about? Just flip over to John chapter 6 real quick and we'll close right now. John chapter 6. Same exact story. Only Jesus tells us what, what we're here for. Why are we talking about this? John chapter 6 verse 26. Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because I filled your belly. Because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for food which perishes, but for food which endures to everlasting life. How many of us are laboring for food that perishes? How many of us are spending our life for that which will not last? How many of us are like Herod, building these great buildings? But we're losing what matters most. Our families. The relationships with people. He said, the Son of Man will give you everlasting life, because God the Father has set His seal upon Him. And they said to Him, what shall we do? What do we need to do to do the works of God? Wow, this is a great opportunity for Jesus to tell them all the things they got to do. No smoking, no drinking, none of this other stuff. you got to wear a tie and the right clothes, and make sure you have a belt for crying out loud so your pants aren't falling down. That's a great opportunity for Him to tell everything they need, right? What's He say? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He sent. That means that you believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. So they said to Him, What sign will you do? He just fed 5,000 people, but never mind. What sign will you do that we might believe you? Our fathers, they ate manna. In the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. Jesus Christ said, your fathers ate manna in the desert and died. But I'm the real bread from heaven. I'm the real bread from heaven, come to give his life, that they might have life everlasting. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Verse 47, he says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. And this is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. For I am the living bread which came from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. That's the point. That's the point of the feeding of the 5,000. Folks, the point of the feeding of the 5,000 is Jesus saying... That is a parable. Something cast alongside a spiritual truth. It really happened. But it's cast cast alongside what spiritual truth? That Jesus is the bread 
of life. That if you have him in your life, you will not be disappointed. You may have a hard life and go through hard things, but when you see Jesus face to face, you're not going to say, man, doggone it, I had to give up all this stuff to get here. The streets of gold aren't all that they're cracked up to be. And the pearly gates, that's not such a great thing. You know what? I don't count any of that thing. Any of those things, the, the beauty of heaven. You know what the beauty of heaven is? I'm going to see Jesus face to face. I'm no longer going to wonder what's he look like. I'm going to see him. I'm going to look into his eyes just like everyone else that has ever looked into his eyes. And I'm going to be utterly and totally changed. My corruptible body will put on incorruption. And I'll never have to be outside of his presence ever again. I will always be with him. I will never wonder what's going to happen. I'm never going to struggle with telling a lie. I'm never going to mess up or get going down the wrong track again. I'm going to be there. And you know what else is beautiful about that? Is every person I ever loved who loved Jesus Christ is there waiting. I don't lose anybody. I loved Pastor Gerald's wife, Cindy, with all my heart. Played games with her, me and my wife, and, and he and his wife till three in the morning, laughing and giggling and having a ball. And we prayed that God would heal her and God took her. He said no. But I didn't lose her. That family I told you about, this little baby girl got run over. They didn't lose her. And every other person who ever had to go through tragedy was someone who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They did not lose them. They're with Jesus and they're safe. And I believe that with all my heart. And because I believe that with all my heart, should the day ever arise when someone tells me, you need to recant of your faith or I'm taking your family. They can't take my family. My family's not theirs. My family belongs to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. They can't take what's not theirs. It's not theirs. Belongs to Him. And I trust Him. My whole heart. Folks, that's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. That's the story of the persecuted church and John the Baptist giving his life. That's the story. It's the right time. It's the right place. And you have enough to change the world. All you have to do is give it to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time that we can come before you, Lord. We thank you for an opportunity to open your word. God, I thank you for, for my brothers and sisters around the world that are paying a terrible price to try to just teach the word today. But God, I pray that it be our heart today, Lord, as we are inspired by their stories, as we're inspired by your word, that we would recognize today what you're telling us today is the right time. What you're telling us is today it's the right place. What you're telling us is right now you want us to give everything that we have to you. And watch what you do with it. Watch how you change my life. Watch how you give us beauty for ashes. Watch how you make it all make sense. I trust you, Lord. With my whole heart. No matter how it looks, no matter what I go through, I know the thoughts that you have toward me 
thoughts of good and not of evil to give me a future and a hope. I know it's true. Lord, I pray, God, in this place, anybody's heart, Lord, that you're speaking to, that you're reaching out to, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that everything changes. The choice is yours. The table is set. And you are invited to the dinner. All you have to do is come. Lord, we thank you. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.